The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no swell plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pism, and the one that flowed around the whole land was Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and ox stone are there. The name of the second river is the Jihan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Azaria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, Surely you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe. Father, your word is good. It's living, it's active, it's unlike any other book that's ever been made or ever been written. It contains the word of God, tells us who we are, it tells us where we come from, tells us why we're here. There's a weightiness to it. 
And I pray that we don't play fast and loose with your word, but we, uh, we place ourselves under it. We're in submission to it. Your word is eternal and we are dust. I ask that you would speak through me today. You would speak through your word, that you would help me think your thoughts. You would help us hear what you would have for us. Um, And Father, I pray that we can take a a humble position before you today and say, you're God, we're not. Um, We will listen to you. So I ask that your word would go forth with boldness. I ask that you would produce fruit that only you and the Holy Spirit can produce. Jesus, be exalted, be lifted up. And God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been uh, wading into the book of Genesis now for four weeks. And today, we're going to start talking about Adam and Eve. We're just about at the tipping point of this story. Once humans enter the picture, things go downhill pretty fast. All right? So we're starting in chapter 2, verse 4. If you have a Bible, please open there. Chapter 2, verse 4. If you have an, an iPhone or an um, Android or an iPad, you can use the Uversion app and hit live events, Sacred City Church, and all the liturgy and all the scripture is right there for you to follow. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you're going to notice some things right away. Um, Moses, who is the author of Genesis, he's going he's gonna to change perspectives here pretty quick. All right? You can see how he tries to make us aware of what he's doing. I want you to look at verse 4. These are the generations, and look what he says, of the heavens and the earth. Okay? You can underline that. When they were created. Now, st- now look, look, keep going. In the day that the Lord God made the, what's it say? Earth and the heavens. Okay, so you see how he starts out there. He says, he says the heavens and the earth in the first part of four, and then he says the earth and heavens in the second part of four. He's showing us that he's changing perspectives. Chapter one was from the heavenly perspective. It was from a, gal- oh, was it, is that really a word I was about to use? A galactic, you know, he's from that type of perspective. All right. It was the Google galaxy view of creation. That was chapter one. And now in chapter 2, God is narrowing the scope. Genesis 1 was way out in the heavens view, and now it was God's cosmic view of creation. And now this, chapter 2, is the street level view of creation. See, the galaxies weren't God's crowning achievement. He didn't create the galaxies and go, wow, that's it, it's over. Man was... So we see now God has this huge view of creation in chapter one where it's the big picture view. And it's, you know, I'm going to use the word. I don't know if it's, word, if it's right or not. The galactic view of creation. All right. And now he's narrowing the scope. Now it's like this. If you're a filmmaker, you've got the wide angle lens of the battle where you can see, you know, I love it. Like Lord of the Rings, they got that wide angle view and you can just see the thousands upon thousands storming Helm's Deep or whatever. And then what does the camera do? Camera zooms in right on a character. Right? To show what's going on with the ring or what's going on with one of the main characters. That's what Moses is doing as he's writing creation now. Chapter one, wide angle view. Chapter two, we are narrowing the scope. 
In Genesis 2, Moses is bringing this drama to a close-up on the beginning of the human race. Up until this point, if you can remember, God has been the sole actor. The Bible's not about us. The Bible's about God and revealing God to us. Chapter 1, he's the only mover and shaker. He's the only one that existed before everything else existed. He's the uncreated creator. God is the sole actor, right? We know objects stay in motion, right? If they're in motion, they stay in motion. Objects must be acted upon to be able to put in motion. God is the sole actor. He puts all things in motion. And now today, we get to meet the first humans, Adam and Eve. Moses is going to start unrolling and unpacking what he said in chapter 1, verse 27, that man is made imago Dei, or in the image of God. See, Adam and Eve, according to the Bible, are not just smart animals. They're not just one step up the evolutionary ladder. God doesn't speak man into existence like he does the other, some of the other aspects of creation. God carefully and thoughtfully and meticulously forms them from the dust, forms Adam from the dust of the ground. Like a potter forms the clay into the shape that he or she desires. In chapter 2, we begin to see God as a skilled craftsman. Not only is he powerful, he could speak it into existence. Like he did light. Let there be light. Boom. Light existed. Not only is he powerful, but he's intimate. He's a craftsman. He puts his hands on. So God forms man from the ground and then he breathes into him and he makes him a living being. The implications of this verse are quite immense. Mystics and philosophers have argued for centuries over what really constitutes a human person. What makes a man a man, a woman a woman? What makes us different from the animal kingdom? This has led many people to believe that the spirit or the soul of a person is what is real and most meaningful. Have you ever heard that? Right? I'm sure some of you, well, we're, we're, we are a spirit. Our spirit is who we really are. And our soul is the most meaningful part of who we are. They say, they say our souls are what separates us from the animal kingdom. And therefore, that is what it really means to be human. Is to be human means to have a soul. This line of thinking has led to a, a belief in ancient times past called Gnosticism. It's a theology or a line of belief that believes the spiritual is good... And the physical is bad. So if you want to be enlightened, this, is, this line of thinking is still prevalent today. If you want to be enlightened, if you want to be good, you must work really hard and rid yourself of the physical and lean totally into the spiritual. Many Christians today have been influenced by this line of thinking. They read scripture and they think that God hates the physical real world that we live in, but he loves the spiritual ethereal world. They believe that God will one day rescue us from this physical world so they can live in some purely spiritual heaven. Genesis 2 blows that framework out of the water. Genesis 2 shows us that our soul was not alive before it had body. And neither was our body alive before it had a soul. God is a spirit. But here we see in Genesis chapter 2 that this spirit 
gets his hands dirty in creation. Now, immediately, you, you might be shocked at some of this language. And the Bible speaks, here's another, it's a million dollar term. This is why you guys pay me the big bucks, okay? And this is anthropomorphic language. Anthropology, you get it? Anthropomorphic language. It is man-centered language. That's the way the Bible speaks to us. When the Bible says God's hands got dirty, it doesn't really mean that God has hands. God is a spirit. But it speaks to us in ways that we can understand. I love it because sometimes it says God's bow is pulled back against the wicked. Well, do we really think that God's in heaven like... Right? No, or his arm is not too short to save, right? Now, is God really like, I hope I can get that, right? He speaks and stuff and galaxies appear. But the Bible speaks of God in an anthropomorphic way, a man-centered way, ways that we can understand. So when he speaks of God having a mind and when he speaks of God having arms and limbs and, 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 and heart, he's not, really, he's not saying that that's what God looks like and God actually has those things. He's speaking... Of, to us in ways that we can understand that God is intimately involved in his creation. I love this. God is a spirit, but he gets his hands dirty in creation. Think about that for a moment. I love this. God obviously doesn't see manual labor as demeaning. To God, the dirt itself is sacred. God is doing holy work as he molds the dust into the shape of the first human man. I want you to think about that. Men, women, a Christian worldview sees digging ditches as a holy work. Construction, the arts, and manual labor aren't just for people who can't make it in college. Jesus himself was a carpenter. God does not think that manual labor is demeaning at all. He partakes of it himself. God sanctifies all of all hard work, all labor, all dirty work by doing it himself. Parents, are you teaching this to your kids? Wearing a tie to work is no more meaningful than wearing a tool belt. You're like, oh, okay, okay, let me get you this one. Being a bricklayer is no more sacred, sacred or no less sacred than being a pastor. Being a pastor is no more sacred than being a bricklayer. In fact, there will be, more than likely, there will be bricklayers in heaven, but there definitely won't be any pastors. I'm going to be out of a job in heaven. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll put the tool belt back on, I guess. Right? Laying gold bricks. I don't know. Maybe that's what we'll have to be doing. Again, God is, again, we've talked a little bit about this week in and week out, but God is just trying to blow up this idea that we have in our little legalistic, minimalistic idea of the world that we want to divide the sacred and the secular. 
We want to just, we want to create this dichotomy that God likes these things, but God hates these things. The, you know, dirt is somehow dirty and I don't want to, but God loves, oh, be a pastor. I want my son to grow up and be a pastor. Don't dig ditches. Daddy won't be proud of you, right? Why? <clears throat> I love it. This is just, gar- I mean, it's just that whole worldview, that whole worldview, sacred, secular, it's just garbage. It's absolutely garbage and it's just flowed over from, from Greek line of thinking, from Gnosticism, from, from this, there, the soul is good and the flesh is bad. Now we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, the flesh does get tainted and the earth does get cursed and there are things that happen, but that's not the way it was created. And if things were still the way they were in Adam and Eve, there would be no pastors. There would be no priests. Man walked and talked with God in the garden. They didn't need a priest to go between them. The only work was in the garden. The only work was construction. The only work was the arts. The only work was, I I want to just say it, real work. Abraham Kuyper, one of my favorite theologians, he has famously said this, there is not one square inch in all of creation that God does not rightly say, mine. There is not one square inch in all of creation that God does not rightly say and rightly lay claim to as mine. And if it's his, it's sacred. Sacred, all sacred means is devoted to God. If all of creation is his, then it's all sacred. So God gets dirty and he forms man and then he breathes into him the breath of life. This is like a kiss on the mouth from God. That might make you feel awkward. All right? That's okay. He's dust. He's laying there. He's formed. He's made the little, I I, I think about the beach, you know, a little sand person. God forms this little sand person and then boom, he lays a smacker right on his lips. And this, this intimacy between God, the creator of everything, he doesn't just speak Adam into existence. He places his mouth on him and he breathes life into him. Oh, that, you know what? I'm just going to say this. That's what you're longing for right now. Dudes are like, no, I don't know. I, I want no kiss from some dude on my mouth. I said, God is not some dude. All right. He is your creator. That is what you're longing for. People's, you know, I think it's, it was Augustine who said, every man who knocks on the house of a brothel is looking for God. Every time you click on pornography, you're looking for God. You're looking for the intimacy that a, that a breath from him would give you. All men, we desire to see the face of God. We desire to know God because that's where we're completed. That's where our soul finally stops craving other things. You can never get enough alcohol. You can never get enough drugs. You can never get enough sex. You can never get enough food. You can never get enough popularity. You can never get enough meaning because you're trying to grab it from all these different places. But when you rest in God, when you let him breathe into you the breath of life, your soul can be satisfied. And that's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for. So from this text, I want to ask you this question. What is more important? The dust or the breath? And I'm going to answer it for you. 
both. Any attempt to separate life from the physical is not biblical. Do you hear that? So many people think like God's got this soul machine somewhere. And your souls are like alive in this soul machine. And then your, your, mom, you know, your mom and dad get pregnant. And God takes a soul from the soul machine, puts it in the body, and now you're alive. Right? God, when you're physically being formed by a miracle, God is placing your soul there. You be, you're not alive before you have a body. You come to life with a soul in a body at conception. God is showing this. He t- why doesn't he just pop out a soul. He forms it from the dust of the ground and breathes into it the breath of life. The physical is not worse or somehow demeaning or somehow secular. And then the, the real person is the soul. False dichotomy. The dust is just as holy as God's breath. Whoa. Really? The dust is as holy as God's breath? Where did the dust come from? God's breath, earth, earth. It came from God's breath. Why do we assume that the dust is somehow less holy than God's breath that he's breathing into the dust, right? To be truly human means to be completely breath and completely dust at the same time. Fully breath and fully dust. Fully spiritual, fully physical. That's what it means to be truly human to be spiritual and physical. When we die, our souls don't just float up to heaven for some ghostly existence. God gives us a brand new spiritual body to wait for Christ's consummation of his kingdom when he will return and he'll give us a brand new physical body to live in his brand new physical new heavens and new earth. Real grass, real earth, real city. That's where this is all headed. That's the end of all things. It's not floating around in heaven. People get so weird when they start talking about this stuff. Will we recognize people in heaven? It's like you're thinking about like, was that wisp of smoke? Was that my grandma? Do we all look like little cherubs floating around with harps? I hope not. I seriously hope not. Listen, as Christians, as Christians, We don't shun the world and just sit around until God beams us up like Scotty from Star Trek. We are to embrace. Do you hear that, Christians? You are to embrace the good of God's creation. And you're to live on this earth like real people who treat their everyday life as sacred unto the Lord. I didn't know, man. I am just so, I'll be honest. I tire. I grow tired of meeting kooky, goofy, crazy Christians. I just grow tired of them. Don't know how to live in the real world. Meet them at the store. They got snot. Their nose is bright red. They got snot running down their face. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. Really? You look like you're sick. Oh, no, I'm healed in Jesus' name. (laughs) Brother, you're snotting down your shirt, man. You ain't healed in Jesus' name. You are weird is what you are. Why? Because the spiritual, they believe the spiritual is somehow more real than the physical. It's more holy than the physical. So if I just quote enough scripture, if I just say enough of the right things, then somehow my physical will line up with the spiritual. Goofiness. Stems from a pagan line of thought. 
It's all legalism. Say the right things, God will bless you the right way. If you do the right things, say the right things, believe the right things, God will heal your physical body. Foolishness. Absolute foolishness. I meet so many people, I meet so many Christians that are like that. Listen, if you've grown up in the church, the church is great at doing this, okay? Because parents are really scared that the world is somehow going to seep into their children and grab them and then make them start, you know, I don't even know, turn them into a rap star or something, right? We're really worried about it. Because we don't trust the power and the sufficiency of Christ. We're worried and we try to cul-de-sac our kids. We try to wall them off and hide them off. And every single kid that I've ever met that would, that could never watch television, okay? They're all jacked up. I'm just going to tell you that. Every kid that I ever met in my entire life that couldn't, watch, that couldn't watch television, by high school, that person was wild. All right? This little legalism, let's pack them away in these little Christian containers and somehow we'll save them. We trust in our models. We trust in our methods. We trust in our religion more than we trust in the sufficiency of an almighty Savior who rules everything from the heavens. Oh my goodness. Hebrews tells us God is mighty enough to save us to the uttermost. If you've grown up in the church and you have never shared the gospel with someone outside of a gathering like this and and you've never seen someone embrace Jesus Christ, this could be one reason. This right here could be one reason. Listen, you are not more spiritual than an unbeliever. You're not more spiritual than them. I know so many people who are way more spiritual than I am. Rubbing crystals. There's something special in every little rock they find. People are inherently spiritual. We are created in the image of God. We are spirit and we, are, we have soul and spirit and we are physical. And, and Christianity just kind of levels the playing field. So, so many times when people want to share their faith, they're thinking, share their faith, they're thinking, okay, I'm a really spiritual person. How do I somehow talk to this person about Jesus Christ? Whoa, 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 what? We don't share our faith from up here, like down here. We are on the same playing field. We are just as broken. We are just as longing to be made complete, longing to find fulfillment. Yes, Christ has started that work in us. Yes, we've had, we've had a taste of it. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But you know we haven't been consummated. We haven't been finished yet. You know we still groan inwardly, right? Like Romans tells us. Listen, they, if you share struggling in your faith, this is what you, you need to just, they're just like you. I know we spiritualize things and you really, 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 really want that new car. Your neighbor got the new sweet minivan with like 18 TVs and, you know, the grill pops out the back and it drives itself and backs itself up, right? I know that's really cool and, and you know, but you're spiritual. So you're, you know, you don't, you want it, but you don't, you're not, you're not willing to admit you want it. Or the funny, the, the Christian way to do it, right? Well, I'm tithing and bless God, brother. He's going to bless me with something like that. I met so many people. Literally, people tell me. I remember when I was younger, a guy walked up to me and said, you know what? I was praying today. God said, I'm going to have a Lexus in six months. I said, really? God must got a sweet dealership worked out because I know you and your credit and that ain't happening. <laughs> six months later, he didn't get no Lexus. He didn't get no Lexus. Still doesn't drive a Lexus. Why? We're, we just, we want to be, I don't even know what it is. We want 
we're, we're desiring, we're longing for a higher spiritual plane. We're longing for an enlightenment. And we think if we be goofy and spiritual, that'll somehow happen. And God just like wipes it out and says, no, get your hands dirty. No, dig ditches. I met so many people that just want to quit their job and start ministry. What? Dig ditches, man. Dig ditches. Look at your mission field right there. You got an amazing mission field right where you are. You're cutting hair. Oh, Lord. Amazing mission field. You don't need to quit your job and then get some Christian ministry. Your ministry is in your job. Everything can be made sacred when we live unto God. So all that, that big rant was just this. If you go to Sacred City, please be normal. I'm just going to throw that out there, okay? Be normal. That's all I'm asking you. Be normal. Love Jesus. Be passionate about him. We yearn for him like that song said. We desire to be made more like Christ. We desire to see people come to faith. We desire all those things. But be normal, please, right? When your friend asks you to have a drink or something, oh, <laughs> please don't, right? All right. That was my rant. Let's just keep going on. Okay. Here we go. So the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So I want you to see, first off, that it... The Bible uses a couple different languages. It says, it says uh, planted a garden in Eden. And a lot of times we are familiar with the garden of Eden. Okay, Eden is bigger than just the garden. Eden is big. God plants a garden in the east side of Eden. Okay, This garden is perfect. And God places man there. In the east where he puts the man whom he had formed. Okay, So God creates this perfect little atmosphere. For me, it reminds me of like those little dioramas I used to create when I was in grade school. This little bitty house, and then you place a little person in there. That's what God's doing. He creates, creates this perfect garden, and then he places man inside this garden. I'm going to skip all the, the river stuff. We have um, located two of these rivers. They're, they're very well-known rivers. But the other two, one of them we think we know where is at. The other one we don't really know. Uh, a lot of theologians believe that when the flood happened, which we'll see in a few weeks, when the flood happened, it kind of messed up the rivers. It kind of messed up the land a little bit. And we don't know exactly uh, where this is today. Um, verse 15. Is that where I'm at? No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, skipped, I skipped verse 9. That's what was confusing me. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree, here we go. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so we've got two distinct trees here. Now, many of us are only familiar with one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Most of us forget about the tree of life, but this is pretty interesting. See, the tree of life is the tree that if you partake of it, you live forever. Human beings were not made immortal. They were made mortal. Human beings were not made to function, functionally live, by the, live on their own for, forever on their own. They weren't made that way. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, God alone has immortality. See, we were made with the capacity to die. The only reason that we were kept alive is through faithful obedience. Adam, see that tree? You eat it, you live forever. Adam's like, that sounds good. I'll eat that tree. Okay? 
Faithful obedience kept him alive. The point is simply this. If you don't obey God, you don't live. Because God is the living God. And when you separate yourself from him, you separate yourself from the source of all life. Now, it wasn't like this tree was magical. We all are searching for the tree of life, this magical tree. It was not a magical tree. The only reason it had power is because God said, I want that tree to have power. The source of life is still God himself. So when God says that's a tree of life, God is giving that tree that power. And then when you eat it, when you obey God, you have eternal life. So our first parents, as long as they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever. As soon as they sin, they're going to be kicked out of the garden. We're going to see that next week in Genesis 3. They'll no longer have access to the tree of life and death now begins. We see again in Revelation. So Genesis is the beginning of the story. Revelation shows us the end of the story. At the end of the Bible, we see in the, in the book of Revelation that the tree of life will come down at the end of time and it will be in heaven. So as the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and, and fills the earth, that the tree of life comes down with it. And you and I who love God and who enter into God's good kingdom rest will partake of the tree of life and we're going to live forever. So there's two trees. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You eat of the tree of life, you live forever. You eat of the tree of the knowledge of good good and evil. And God says later on in this chapter two that you will surely die. So here, the tree of life is standing in the middle of the garden. I want you to picture this. God builds a garden. In the middle, he puts the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He surrounds it by all kind of good fruit trees, right? All kind of good stuff. Animal, all, everything surrounded it. Places man there. Right in the middle of the garden is temptation, is testing. And these right here, these two trees, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, they're really the juxtaposition of all human history. That the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the pursuit of insight and knowledge and wisdom and education and information apart from God, away from God. It's the opportunity for human autonomy that I can somehow find the meaning of life, the purpose of life away from God. I don't want him telling me what to do. I'd rather discover it on my own. Does that sound familiar? Who is he to tell me what to do? I'm going to find the meaning of my life. I'm gonna, I think sex outside of marriage is good. So I'm going to define that for my life. That's what good is for me. And God says, that's foolish. And that ends in death. It ends in death. But his way ends in life. See, in the Bible, wisdom is thinking the thoughts of God. Folly is being an independent person thinking your own thoughts, thinking that you're as smart as God. When God calls something bad, we're just supposed to take his word for it. But unfortunately, we're foolish, right? This is what we say. He says, that's bad. We're like, I don't know. That's hot. Don't touch it. I don't know. What What did you do? Why did you create fire? You're a mean God. He's like, I told you how to use it. Don't touch it. How often do we do this? Parents, how often? You see this with your kids. Don't run with scissors. I don't know. I think you just don't want me to have fun, mom. (laughs) Right? It's going to go bad for you, son. 
I don't care. You can round off those child protective scissors. They can still, you know, here's the simple way. Don't cut your hair. Don't cut your, I don't know. I think I'll be beautiful. To the scalp, right? To the scalp. You're having to shave that girl's head down like Sinead O'Connor to make her look normal. It, it will go bad for you. I don't know. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Right? My son every day. Javin, don't run in flip-flops. <laughs> don't run. I can run in flip-flops. My flip-flops have a strap on the back. I can do that, Dad. <laughs> skin knees, skin palms. It's going to go bad for you. That's who we are. Hey, I've had a college education. You can't tell me. I know philosophy and I know epistemology and I've studied Greek and blah, 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 blah. I can determine what, what is good and right and perfect on my own. No, you can't. From the beginning, you weren't created autonomous. You weren't created omniscient, all-knowing. You needed revelation from outside of yourself. Adam and Eve needed revelation from outside themselves. They needed God to say, see that tree? That one's good. See that tree? That one's bad. It's the only rule. One rule. Oh, God, if we could go back to that. One rule, just that tree. If I would have been Adam, I would be building walls around that one tree, keeping everybody away from this one tree. Things can go bad. Don't do it, right? So God says, don't do it. We say we want to do it. That's human rebellion. That's human, you know, searching, human, searching for autonomy. We can define ourselves on our own. All right, now listen. What this does show us is, I, I want you to see this. Temptation in itself is not bad. In perfection, in Eden, in this idyllic scene, God places temptation. God places a test. Here's good, here's bad. That's not bad in itself. I know so many people get off on this. Why would God even give us a temptation? Why would God even give us the ability? Because you're a free moral agent. Because if you can't choose to do good, what's the point? You're a robot. If you can't choose to be rebellious, you're a robot. Now, after Genesis, after Genesis 3 happens, there's a little twist in the story, but we'll get to that later. But what this shows us is that temptation is not bad in and of itself. It's kind of like a test. Here's the test. Do you trust God? That's it. Do you trust God or do you trust more in yourself? Do you have more faith in your opinion, in your intelligence, in your education? Or do you trust God? See, sometimes we have to argue sometimes our, our ethics and we have to argue why we believe certain things. We have to go back to the Bible and prove certain things. But for the Christian, really, for us, we say, because God said it. He built it. He tells us the rules. Right? Like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know why. But God says it's good. This is what we do. It goes back to, will you have his way? Or will you believe your way? So we see this. And this is the unfortunate part. The tree's right there in the middle of the garden. Right? So this tells us that not only is temptation normal, that temptation is something that we all should experience and that we all do experience, but not only is it normal, temptation is never far away. Can you imagine that? Adam and Adam is walking by the tree every day. Sin and temptation are never way out there. They're always right here in our living room. 
They're always right in the middle of your life. And the deal is this. Every day, Adam would walk by these two trees. And every day, he would need to choose life or choose death. Every day. Obedience or disobedience? Wisdom or folly? He, would have to, he probably would have to make that choice multiple times every day. And you and I do as well. And as I was studying this, this is what I thought. This is what I was thinking this week. What tree do you focus on more often? The, 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 the Christian or the worldview that says the physical is bad or somehow less important and the spiritual is more important, that they, 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 they lock, like to lock their kids away. And I was talking about that. One of the things they do is they, all, they focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's all they focus on. There's bad stuff out there. Did you know there's bad stuff out there? Did you know there's bad things on the internet? You know there's bad things on TV? You know there's bad books? Well, who's in your class? What's that kid that's sitting next to you? What's he like? What are his parents? Did you see him? Why was he wearing all black? I'm concerned. Right? We're focusing on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're focusing on there's temptation out there. Things could go bad. Things could go bad. And all of our, all, this is what our kids know. That's bad. 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 What does it mean to be a Christian? I know everything that's bad. I know everything that, that's just wrong about the world. I know I'm, I'm an expert on sin. Don't do that because that's sin. Don't do that because that's sin. Don't do that because that, that's sin. We focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How often do we focus on the tree of life? How often do we teach our kids how good and gracious and loving and perfect God is? How often do we focus on what will nourish us, what will give us life, how to go to his word and read and how to fellowship with him, how to draw upon the union that I have with Christ because his spirit dwells in me? How often do I train my kids on on doing that? Instead, I train them to avoid the tree. Okay, just don't look. Just don't look at the tree when you walk by. Walk really fast when you're walking by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And maybe it won't jump out and get you. How often in your own life, not just with our kids, that's my baby. How often, can I ask you this? Men, women who struggle with addiction, do you spend more time dwelling on the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The negative sin, the sin, the the negative side. Do you spend more time dwelling on that or dwelling on the tree of life for the Christian dwelling on that God will come and dwell inside you. We have a union with Christ. We've been given a righteousness that's foreign to ourselves. How often do you dwell on the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel? Do you spend more time trying to avoid sin or trying to manage sin or trying to just not feel bad anymore? (laughs) Right? Now here's the truth, God. All right, I'm praying because I'm repenting, but the truth is I really just want to do it and I don't want to feel bad about it anymore. It's not repentance. And you're probably not even broken over your sin. You're just tired of getting caught. You're tired of feeling bad about it. You're tired of looking like a fool from your friends and neighbors who know you. You haven't been broken over it and you haven't seen the goodness of God. The tree of life is the goodness of God. Thomas Chalmers, a couple hundred years ago, he wrote this amazing sermon and it was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What he was saying is you're never going to defeat sin by trying to defeat sin. You're going to defeat sin by being consumed and infatuated and loving God so much more that this new affection pushes out the desire for the sin. I desire, I want to know God so much more and that desire for God pushes out the desire for pornography or addictions or, or power or whatever it is that's gripping us in the moment. 
the expulsive power of a new affection. So here we go. Let's keep going. On and on and on. Um, Let's go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. This This should arrest us right here. This should catch us off guard. If we were reading straight through uh, chapter one into chapter two, if we were reading straight through, we would go, whoa, there's something different here. This should abruptly interrupt the flow of the creation account. God has been giving his benediction. That's his good word. He's been saying it is good over and over after every facet of his creation. But now he breaks the flow and he gives, it's, it's, he pronounces what's actually called a malediction. He doesn't just say it's not good. He says it's bad. He's good. You know, let there be light. It is good. Let there be, it is good. It is good. It is good. Man, he's alone. It is bad. We should, whoa, we should, we should be caught off guard. We should be arrested here to pay attention to what he's trying to say. It is bad for man to be alone. Now, listen, that's just that for me, that's the understatement of the century. Okay. It's bad for man to be alone. Have you guys seen Castaway with Tom Hanks? Right. Dude starts conversating with a volleyball to keep his sanity, right? It is not good. And that, that's kind of, if I was honest, that's how I see Adam in this picture. I mean, he's not like a caveman. He's got all this, but I kind of see, you know, I kind of see Tom Hanks, the, the beard for sure. I kind of see that in this Adam account. And this is one. It's funny. I, I just think it's hilarious. Now, um, well, first off, remember that, that God exists inside of a trinity, right? That like he is himself a community. So when he creates man in his image, he creates man for community. He builds him for relationship. He needs community to really be human. Men, we were built, I know we don't want to believe this, we were built for relationships. But this part is just absolutely hilarious to me, okay? Because God says, okay, dang, this is not good. That man is alone. I got to create something for this dude. Okay, and what does he do next? What what does God do next? Let's look. I will make a helper. I will make a helper fit for him. Oh, that sounds great. Great plan, God. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Okay, so God pronounces, it's bad man is alone. Adam's like, finally, I'm glad you're seeing this. It's bad that I'm alone. Okay, okay. What are you going to do? I'm going to form a helper for you. Okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to form animals. I'm going to bring all the animals in front of you and I'm going to let you name them, all right? He makes animals, he makes all the animals and then he parades them in front of Adam to name them to see if any of them are fit for a relationship with him. Can you picture this in your mind? Now I'm still, I'm picturing Tom Hanks. He's sitting there. God is parading these animals by him, all right? Adam is sitting there as God ushers the bear past him. Adam is like, I will call him bear. But no, 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 that will not work for me right? I'll call that a dog. Well, he looks like a really good friend, but no, no, he's not fit for me, right? God ushers the monkey. Well, monkey, well, I think we're getting closer here, but no. Adam goes through all the mammals and is like, absolutely not. There is no helper fit for me. Now this, this is what I'm, and I'm picturing in my mind. I love this because I believe this is kind of like men asking for directions here. Most men will only do it when they realize they're hopelessly lost. You've seen the same gas station three times. Your wife's pointed it out twice, and now you see it coming up, and you're like, Egh. you denied it the first two times, and now you know you're caught. 
You have to stop and ask for directions. I think this is exactly what God is doing here. He tells Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And then he proves to him just how lonely he is. Ushering all the animals. Adam's like, that thing's cool. A saber tooth, that's cool. But I ain't, uh-uh, I ain't cuddling up with that thing. Uh-uh, that ain't going to fit. Right? That donkey, uh, No. So he's ushering all these animals to try to let him feel the weight of you are really alone in the garden and it is not good for you. And then, come, then I love this. I absolutely love this. God wanted Adam to really, really appreciate Eve. So God knocks him out and he goes to work. He removes one of his ribs. He doesn't make, him, make her from the dust separate from Adam. He removes one of his ribs and he fashions her, he forms her into his helpmate, the first woman. Commentators have said God didn't take part of his head that she would feel above him, nor his feet that she would be below him, but God took her from his side, from his rib, because her place was beside him. Men, you put your arm around your wife, you say, welcome home, baby. That's where she's meant to be. At your side. Not in front, not behind, not above, not below. At your side. So God himself forms a helper suitable for Adam. Now ladies, you might be bristling. Don't bristle at the term helper. Okay? Because the term helper is used of God himself later in scripture. God is our helper. So God uses it of himself. It's not a derogatory term that says man is somehow up here and women are down here and we snap and I need a beer. And she, she runs around and, oh, I'm sorry, my long skirt, I'm tripping on it, right? I was sorry. I was, I was sewing our children's clothes. I apologize. Hold on, because the butter, I've been churning it all day and it's almost ready, right? No, this is, not the, this is not what God is presenting here. It's a helper. It's two pieces of a puzzle. All right? We, at Sacred City Church, we take the historical position. We are complementarian. We mean, that means men and women are created differently. They're distinct, but they're equal. We say it like this. They're equal, but not equivalent. All right? They're equal, but not equivalent. They're two pieces of a puzzle. They both have dignity, value, and worth, but they, 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 were, they do different things. They complement each other. Now, one thing I do want to show you here, men, is, uh, and you, you might not like it here, but this is kind of what happens. God creates this perfect idyllic garden. He places us in there. He says, I want you to tend it and I want you to keep it. And because he places this calling on our life to subdue creation, to make culture, to, ex- to build cities and, and expand the goodness of his creation. He says, you can't do it on your own. You need a helper to help you do this thing. The stuff that I've been able to accomplish in my life, there's, my wife and I talk about it often. There's no way I could be who I am today without my wife. There's no way I could do what God's called me to do without my wife. My wife is my compliment. My, she compliments me. She gives me strength and ability to do things that I couldn't do without her. There's no way. She is my better half. There's, I mean, my fruitfulness for God would decreased by probably, you know, 60, 70% without my wife. She allows me, she helps me do the thing that God's called me to do. But one thing I want you to see here, men, 
God gives us a job before he gives us a woman. I'm sorry, but if you can't keep a job, you can't love a woman. Sorry, dudes, but you got to see this. Before the curse, before the curse, before a woman, God made us and he made a garden and he put us there to work it and keep it. This shows us that getting a job and keeping a job is as much a discipleship issue as prayer or Bible study. Oh, but here comes that Gnostic thinking. What? But I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to live with my mom because I'm studying the Bible and I'm learning Greek. Good. And get a jobby job at the same time. Because you can't just be this little spiritual halo boy and, 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 and try to just mooch off your mom the rest of your life. Getting a job is a discipleship issue. Keeping a job is a discipleship issue. I know we get fi- people get fired for unethical reasons and people get dismissed for unethical reasons. I realize people lose their job because of bad economies and businesses go under. I realize all those things. But getting a job is a discipleship issue. Work at McDonald's if you have to. You mean my wife wasn't even in here when I was giving her all those compliments? Dang it. Listen to, listen to the MP3, babe. It's on the podcast. Uh, all right. Listen, this is where I, I call them hyper-spiritual people. That's just what I call it. I call it hyper-spiritual people that think the spiritual is somehow better than the physical, that, that God doesn't really care if you have a job or not. You can live in your mom's basement playing video games the rest of your life, and God's okay with that. He's not. Living in your mom's basement, eating her food, paying his, she's paying your bills because you're getting close to Jesus, right? Moms, oh, well, you know, God's doing something special in his life, and I'm just really afraid to make him get a job because, you know, God's doing something right now. If God's doing something, he's leading him to a job because that's what God did. Garden, job. And then he said, woman. I I just want you to chew on that, dudes. Just chew on that. Ladies, if the man can't keep a job, don't date him. And I realize, guys, there's a lot of reasons out there, but, but, a, but a lot of it is we just, we're not, we're lazy. Something is beneath us. Get a job at McDonald's. It doesn't matter. Is it beneath you? Why? Why is it beneath you? Why do you feel working at McDonald's is beneath you? That's a gospel issue. God got in the dirt. God dug ditches. God made man. God, God made everything sacred. Would you like fries with that? That's sacred. You want to supersize that? Sacred. Get a job. That's what God's word for you is. It's not below you. It's not demeaning. Listen, I owned a construction company. I, I, I made a lot of money. I did that. And then I became a pastor and all oh, my dreams came true. And then I had to move to Omaha and work at Whole Foods. Do you know where the cereal is? Let me show you, sir. I do. Listen, it was a gospel issue in my heart. God had to humble me. And, it, and I came to love that job. I came to love that job. Just get to serve people and hang out, right? Share my faith. I loved it. Eat crazy weird food. 
It was good. Listen, ladies, if you can't keep a job, don't date him. It's that easy. It's that simple. It's a theological issue. He was made by God to work, not sit at home and pet your hair. I don't care how good he treats you, ladies. That petting will get old real fast. All right? If he doesn't have a job, don't date him. Men were created to work. I'm just going to get off on that. I don't care how good he treats you because it won't matter a year into the marriage when you're still eating ramen noodles. It won't matter. He's so sweet to me, though. Yeah, I see that. Why are you riding a bike to work? Right? Right? Tandem. <laughs> you can only afford one. You're on the handlebars. But he loves you. Yeah, and you can't have kids. You know you can't have kids because you can't support them. Goodness gracious. Oh, Lord. I'm going on. Okay. And now we see God. This is what God's doing here. God creates this, ma- this woman fitting for the man, this helper fitting for the man. And look, look what God does. So Adam named all the animals and then the deep sleep. And um, he made it into a woman. And then man says this. This at last... Hold on. Okay, here we go. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he did this. Look, he brought her. God brings her to the man. Right here, we see God escorting Eve down the aisle to give her hand in marriage to Adam. This is the first marriage. This is the creation of the covenant of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created man and woman, and he created marriage to to be between one man and one woman. Marriage is exclusive. One man, one woman. I know there's this, oh man, I don't even want to go there, but I will. Um, Mormonism originally polygamists they've kind of backed away from it now but they're still you can see there's shows on television called Sister Wives right oh it's totally normal these women are like fighting at, fighting with each other and, and we're like you didn't see this coming <laughs> but anyways is there polygamy in the Bible? absolutely is it sin? absolutely Absolutely. There was polygamy in the Bible. It's never condoned by God. It's never blessed by God. Marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman. Period. It's exclusive. Okay? I'm not going to go into it. You can bring out the implications yourself. It's also permanent. Man is meant to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's permanent. Cleaving permanent. <clears throat> and now God brings forth Eve. She, he gives her, he gives her to Adam. The first marriage ceremony takes place. And what does, what does Adam do? I love it. Adam responds. I'm not going to sing it. Adam responds at last, right? I think this is where Etta James gets her song right here. At, can you just we, we're made to like just get caught up in that phrase, at last. Can you think about this picture? Tom Hanks sitting on the thing, donkey, no, bear, no, dog, no, going through the whole thing. And then God says, oh, I say my best for last. 
he walks her up and he says, at last. And then he erupts in poetic worship. First poetry ever, first words out of the mouth of man. Adam has not spoken yet at all in this creation account. Now God has been the sole actor. Now we see Adam responding and speaking in poetry. And he says, bone, of, he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Adam spits out some killer lines of poetry. It's interesting to notice this, ladies. Adam is freaking out right now, right? Whoa, right? Like he sees this girl for the first time. I love it because it's like God creates man. It's called man. Adam sees woman. He's like, whoa, man, right? Like that's just how it happened, right? He's like in shock and he's in worship. Now, listen, what's interesting to know is the Bible doesn't speak to what Eve looked like. Was she a tall, skinny blonde? Was she short and thick brunette? Was she a fiery redhead? The Bible doesn't tell us. Do you see what it does tell us? Compared to the monkey, she was smoking hot. Listen, right, right. Compared to the donkey that God brought by me, this chick is a 10 and a half. Okay. Now listen, this is, this is, it's funny, but God's doing this for a specific reason. God is doing this for a specific reason. God doesn't issue a description of physical beauty that everyone else must live up to. Ladies. God doesn't say, here is beauty. This is her shape. This is what she looks like. This is how she does her hair. Now all you ladies live up to that. God doesn't set a beauty standard and cause you to live up to it. Men, God doesn't say, here's beauty, go after it. That's what you need to look for in a wife. I love it. I absolutely love this. God says this, men. Your wife is your standard of beauty. Your wife. Not Victoria's Secret. Not Playboy. If you're in your 50s, then you should be really into chicks in their 50s. Chick in her 50s. Sorry, chick in her 50s. Your wife, she's hot. She's your standard. What tree are you looking at? See, men, if we're looking at the tree of life and God says, this is good, then we're looking at our wife and like, she is hot. She completes me. She'll kiss me even when I have a nasty beard. This is good. But if you're, looking, if you're looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're looking at Playboy. You're looking at television. You're looking at whatever magazine you're wanting to look at or the internet or whatever you're wanting to look at. And you say, oh, that's the standard of beauty. I'm unsatisfied. God says, it's amazing. Your wife is your standard of beauty. We have no idea what Eve looked like. No idea. She could have been as hairy as a monkey. We have no idea. We know she didn't come out shaving her legs, right? Everybody's like, oh my God, I've never thought about that. <laughs> Listen, Job said this. Job said this. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. I've made a covenant with my eyes. He's saying, I'm not going to look at the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm going to stare at the tree of life. I'm going to stare at my intimacy with Christ. That's our standard, men. We only have eyes for our wives. So I don't care what you were before you got married. You're a guy who likes thick girls. You like tall girls. You like skinny. It don't matter. What God gave you, what you married, that's what you're into now. Scripture then says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, and cleave to his wife. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. You need to separate from your parents. Okay, You need to become your own person, husband, wife, to become one, new, new people. When your mom-in-law gets in the mix, things get weird, okay? So move out, do what you got to do to become one. And then one of the best verses in all the Bible, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you see what's happening here? God has created a perfect garden. It's got brilliant sunsets and sunrises. It's got sparkling clear water that flows down from a gorgeous mountain. There's good, fulfilling work there. There is succulent fruit to eat. And Adam and Eve are both enjoying eternal life while naked. This is good. This is paradise. And only an idiot could screw it up. But that's exactly what we did. It's exactly what our parents did. We're going to talk about that next week. Adam and Eve chose to define good and evil on their own. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and and create their own world where they can make their own rules. They wanted to live autonomously, separate from God. And can I ask you today, are we any different? How often do you knowingly choose to give in to temptation? How often do you willfully do what you know you should not do? The Bible calls that sin. And the holy God of the Bible says that sin deserves death. There is no life apart from God. And if you want to do your own thing, Romans 1 shows us again, if you want to do your own thing and say, well, I, want to, I believe marriage should be for whoever wants to get married. And, um, if you want to do your own thing, God doesn't come down and just crush you. He says, oh, okay, go ahead. It's going to go bad for you. It will end in death. Listen, God has not changed his standard. There is no curve. He's still holy and perfect and demands perfection out of his creation. Perfection, not good enough. There is no good enough. The good enough is perfect. If you're not perfect, you fail. You deserve death and hell for eternity. But this is what he's done. Listen, this is what he's done. This good, gracious, holy, just God, this is what he's done. The perfection that he demands, he's fulfilled it on his own. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live the perfect life that we all should live. 
And Jesus then died the death that every one of us deserve. We've earned it. It's our paycheck for sin. It's coming at the end of the week. Death. Christ cashed that out for us. Christ died by taking our sin in and on himself and carrying it to the cross and letting God crush him, letting the wrath of God be poured out on him so the wrath of God could be diverted around us if we embrace him by faith. Jesus took the place of those who embrace God by faith. And Jesus gives to those who take him by faith. He gives them a new, perfect righteousness that's not their own. He covers you with this new brilliant standard, this new cloak of many colors, this new animal skin that we're going to see later in Genesis. He covers us with this righteousness that's not our own, that's from his own son, the right standing, the report card that Jesus got, the perfect A's all through his life. He gives it to us by faith. a foreign righteousness. His perfect obedience, his perfect lifelong obedience, Jesus credits to our account. It's amazing. Listen. So many of we have a hard time seeing a holy God and a loving God. And he's, he's both. You can't have one without the other. Listen, he's a loving God, so we can come to him. We can confess our deepest, darkest sins to him. And he doesn't lash out at us. He doesn't lecture us. He says, take my son. Take him. He saves to the uttermost. He covers you with his perfection. Yeah, you're still a sinner, but now you're a sacred sinner. You're a sacred sinner. You're his sinner and his love will continue to shape you and mold you to look more and more like Jesus for the rest of your life. His love will do that for you. And listen, this work in our life, it's called sanctification, this process that we're being made into the image of Jesus. This process, it happens by us continually going back to what the Bible calls our justification. We look more and more like Jesus by being reminded that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we're worse than we ever thought possible, but at the same time, we're more loved than we ever hoped. That's how we grow into his likeness. And this process will never be done until from dust we came till dust we, we will return. When we return to the dust and we die, then we'll be complete. Then our work will be over then faith and repentance will be no more. But now all that's left for the Christian is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. It's the drum we beat all the days of our life. You have Jesus and he has you. And that will be enough and that will get you through whatever life brings. This morning... If you have never and you don't, you've not embraced Jesus Christ by faith, I offer him to you today freely that God and his sovereignty has brought you here. 
He's brought you under the teaching of the word of God. You've heard the gospel proclaimed. And if you, I, I ask that you would respond in faith to him. I ask that you would say, Father, God, I don't really know you, but I want to give you all of my sin and I want your righteousness and I want to know you and I want to eat from the tree of, of life. I want to know this good God. I ask that you would embrace him by faith in your seat today. And for, for those of you who have believed and you have been baptized, it's a great thing to say. We get to come and take Christ. We get to take him this morning. We get to be reminded with a physical bread and, 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 and wine and grape juice that, that God has been broken on our behalf, that there's something physical put in our hands that we can take him and be reminded, I have received Christ. I have life and godliness inside of me and everything I need for life and godliness has been given to me through the life-giving spirit of God. When we re- reach out and receive that today, you're reminded that you've received him by faith. You've been made new. And I pray that this would make you hungry for him. It would awaken a spiritual hunger in your heart that maybe you haven't experienced since you were first saved or maybe you haven't experienced for years or maybe you just have never experienced it in your life. That this body and blood of Christ, that it would awaken something on the inside of you. Remind you of where you came from. Remind you that your completion is in him. Father, I do thank you for the elements. I thank you for the body. In the blood of Christ, Jesus said it's broken for us. It's shed out for us. Um, I thank you for just the reality of the new covenant that we get to enter into. That we're judged not by our own works anymore, but we're judged by the works of Christ. Father, I pray that you would communicate this life to us today. Convince us of our righteousness in you. And Father, you would send us out as missionaries who know how to live a normal life real life in and amongst this world. All of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.